Hey everyone, thanks for taking time to listen to our latest sermon. A sermon about the life of a king named David and the truths we can take from it on living a meaningful life ourselves. Before it plays, I want to update you on two things. First, we have built a new website to serve as a central hub for our church. The site is creekside.me and on it you can subscribe to our newsletter, sign up for an event, donate money, and even let us know how God has used this sermon to impact you. The other thing that I want to let you know about is that our sermon videos are now available on our website. If you'd rather watch this sermon than listen to it, just visit wilsonville.church David. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Before I begin, I want to thank uh, Chad for letting me speak the last three weeks. Um, I'm the chaplain at the, at the school I teach at, and um, every now and again I have to get guest speakers, and I know how hard it is to trust other people to speak sometimes, um, and how horrible it is when uh, you know that you didn't choose very wisely, um, because they might be saying some things that you're just back there wishing they wouldn't be saying. Um, but let me tell you very quickly a, uh, a story about when I was um, going to my wife's work. She works for a chiropractor. Um, but one of the perks is that I can get massages from the chiropractic assistants now and again. And I remember um, one of the ladies... Uh, was going to give me a massage, and one of my biases, I, I always just figured, you know what, if I'm getting a massage, I'm unlike my dad. My dad would prefer that a half-pound kitten walk on his back, like that's strong enough. But I want like deep tissue, I want it to be hard, right? Um, and so I, I just say to myself, you know, I, I, I would prefer that a guy uh, massage my back, because, you know, this more strength, right? That's my assumption, my bias. And so uh, when this uh, smaller woman is going to be giving me a massage and she asks, you know, how hard do you want me to go? And I'm like, you can go as hard as you'd like. Trust me, strength 10. Like, I, I, I like it hard. And then it proceeded to feel like Hulk Hogan was trying to see if he could squash one of, all of my vertebrae, really, with his hands. And I was in absolute pain, to the point that I was, I was pinching the side of my leg as hard as I can, like, I want to focus on this pain more than this pain, right? And, and then she would ask, is this okay? Oh, yeah, it's perfect. Right? Because I'm not going to admit, like, all right, like, all right, you need to step it down, like, by half. You need to cut it in half, frankly. This is way too much. But I endured. Um, I had biases. I had assumptions I was making about her, um, and they were wrong. And as I've followed, as many of you have, I'm sure, this uh, tragedy in Houston, this Hurricane Harvey and, and the tropical storm and the incumbent flooding. I've realized how tragedy can often 
erase some of the biases and assumptions that we have about other people. And when I was seeing all the news coverage on this tragedy, I thought about what the famous Mr. Roger said when confronted with similar tragedy. He said that he would reflect on his mother's words that said, son, look for the helpers. There are always the helpers. And so that's kind of what I would do. I would uh, look um, at this tragedy and I would look for the helpers. Because a lot of the news is trying to cover who's not doing enough, what political side is not doing enough, what belief is responsible for some of the suffering. Who can we blame? It's got to be someone's belief that is causing this suffering. And I just wanted to look for the helpers. So I I think, do we have a few images that I can show? Uh, This first one um, is um, a man who's helping his daughter and and his child um, um, just out, this is just a, uh, a man who's part of what they call the Cajun Navy. Just uh, when, when I looked at the images of the freeway, you would think you're seeing tons of people leaving. What you saw was traffic backed up with trucks carrying boats of people getting in, of people coming and saying, we're going to wait hours and hours and hours so we can bring our, help, our boat so that we can help. And this is a, a man who brought his boat to be part of this Cajun Navy of people coming in and saving people. And there's another image. Um, you can't really see this, um, but um, there's a gentleman carrying uh, two children uh, out of a home. It's uh, a volunteer safety worker. Um, but it's one of these things where in this picture you can see that race doesn't matter And this guy isn't thinking, hey, before I pick you kids up, what do your parents believe? That matters, right? This next picture. So this is a cop who is passed out because he worked until his body could literally work no more. And cops, right, they get a hard time in the news all the time. We focus a lot on the ones that aren't doing it right and don't focus very much on the ones that are. Who said, I'm willing to sacrifice myself to the point where I collapse because I cannot move anymore. In this last one, uh, this guy's name is Mattress Mac. He owns uh, two furniture uh, mattress stores in Houston. And when it happened, he said, I'm going to allow my showrooms to be refugee centers. He said, anyone can come. Bring your pets. Bring whatever. I will feed you. You will sleep on my showroom furniture, on my mattresses, right? These things that I sell, I don't care. And there's video of kids jumping on these mattresses. He said, I don't care. I want you to come. I want you to be safe. I want you to have a place to go. I don't care how much it costs me because I want to help. And when I look at the helpers, I'm overwhelmed with the reality that this is the kind of world that I want to live in, a world full of helpers. But we cannot have that type of world 
if we as Christians do not embrace and embody the kind of love that Jesus calls us to. So, I've speaking three weeks. Uh, I've done two already, so for you that weren't here, the first week I, I talked about really the groundwork. What are the rules? Um, that the world wants to eliminate enemies. That the objective is to completely destroy. It's like a game of checkers. But those aren't the rules. We're as Christians called to love, not because of what somebody does, but despite what they may do. We're called to love even when it is hard, because that's when it matters the most. And the second week, I've, I made three points. If the rules are that we love uh, despite not because, and we love even when it's hard, there are three ways that we go about doing this. And the first one that I talked about was that feeling really follows our actions. And there have been studies on this that show how interconnected uh, behavior is with how we feel. Um, but I talked about how we really, we can't just force ourselves to feel a certain way. But that if we do it, if we are persistent in our choice to love people, God in here, in our hearts, will make the change. And the second point I made was that uh, revenge is a roadblock that God talks about how vengeance will be His, that there's really no room for us in this equation. We can't do anything more. And when we aren't able to retaliate, sometimes it feels like the person is getting away with murder. But nobody gets away with murder or anything else for that matter. God says, I will punish and I will do it best. I will either punish their sins on the cross with the sacrifice of Jesus if they accept that, and you can't add to that. Or I will punish in eternity in hell, and you can't add to that punishment either. So if there is nothing that we can add, revenge, when we take it, only serves to ruin our ability to love the way that God calls us to love. And the last point I made was that love is not a weapon. Uh, we've all heard that long-standing idea that we can kill them with kindness. But that's not what Christ calls us to. It's this idea that we can still have revenge, we can still hurt our enemies, and we can feel good about doing it. It's the same game, just a different strategy. But those aren't the rules. And so this is, this is hard. I mean, this idea that so we, we love despite, not because. We love even when it's really hard. 
Love is not a weapon. We can't take revenge. I mean, we just got to do it even when we don't feel it. It seems absurd. It seems really, really hard. And to make matters worse is that it's complicated, isn't it? It's complex. And Jesus knew this. In, in, in Matthew 5, 38 through 42, he says this, Jesus. You have heard that it was said, I for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And in these verses, Jesus is beginning to set up this juxtaposition where later on he talks about how we pray for those who persecute. We bless our enemies. And he's saying at first it's we give to our enemies. We give, we give, we give, and then we bless and we bless and we bless. But in this, Jesus isn't saying, this is exactly how you love your enemy. This is exactly what you do and only what you do. He's saying, this idea here is the spirit of the kind of love that I want you to demonstrate. It's the spirit of the kind of love because it's complicated. Imagine that your friend calls you up and he is spiraling down into a pit of depression. He's not thinking rationally. You can hear that he is suicidal. And you go over to his home and you see that he has a gun and you've positioned yourself to have the ammo. And he's in a bad place. And he finally says, give me that ammo. Give it to me and leave my house. Are you going to think, Jesus says, give. Give to those who ask. He asked me to give him the ammo. He asked me to leave, so I'm going to do it, right? No. No. He's asking for the means to destroy his life. He is not thinking correctly. He is spiraling down. And he's saying, I want the means to make it worse. Do you give him what he asks for? And the answer is no. You don't give him what he asks for, but you do give him what he needs. That demonstrates the spirit of the kind of love that Jesus wants. And so you as Christians are going to be put into situations where you have to discern this spirit of love. But it's complicated. 
isn't it? It's complex. It's hard. And so at this point, we might be asking ourselves, why would we put ourselves through this? Not only is it hard, but now I have to actually think about the spirit of this love. There isn't just some formula that I just do and not think about. Why would I do this? And that's what I want to address today. The why. And I think about several stories, many of which that I've told before, but they are worth retelling. Some of you have never heard them. But when I think about the why, I think about uh, the story of um, Ashley, my wife. And when she was my girlfriend, she wanted to go ice skating. And I've never been again, and you will find out why. But she and I and her friends all went ice skating at the uh, uh, rink in Sherwood. And I grew up rollerblading, um, and so ice skating is a little bit more rigid, but it's, it's kind of the same thing. So I could just fly, and I was just good, sort of out of the box, ice skating. And because I, of course, want to impress my girlfriend, I um, will do things that I probably shouldn't do. I was reckless, um, and I go very quickly, and I jump into the air, and I do a 360, and I nail it. It looked good. I landed it. It felt good. I don't know how it looked. But the, the girls were impressed, every single one of them, except for my wife, because she didn't see it. She was turned away. So the one girl, the one girl who I wanted to see it, didn't see it. So I'm not content on just telling her, hey, I did something really cool. I say, well, let me show you again. And I'm thinking, I landed the first one. This one's going to be bigger. It's going to be better because I can do this. I get more speed. I get more air. I get just the right spin. And then I nail the landing in a very unfortunate way. Because ice skates, who designed these? Because I want to talk to you about it. They have these little spiky things in the front. Like who breaks like that, the front of an ice skate? And uh, I land on the front of the skates. And the, there's a thing about momentum that if you come to a sudden stop, your body wants to keep going. And it did, just directly into the ice. I smashed my face hard. And I knew it immediately. I, for, fortunately, I kept consciousness. And when I lift my face, just blood. And I could feel my, my lip just destroyed. I have a scar. I, there's still a bump in my lip that I can feel. It hasn't gone away. But the worst about it was that at this time, I was very particular about my teeth, very particular, and my teeth were not right. Something was crooked in my mouth. My tooth was not sitting right anymore, and I felt it. If you look at me now, many people notice that I have uh, an off-color tooth. It looks, frankly, blue. 
Um, and that's because it's not real. <laughs> that is a fake tooth in my mouth. And uh, I remember my wife uh, recalls that the first thing I said, she's looking at my bloody, disgusting face, and all I'm saying is, my tooth, my tooth, my tooth, right? And she's like, your tooth, your face, right? <laughs> and as we're going out there, because I'm, I'm going to go to the hospital and get that fixed up, and she's taking me, uh, I look at her with my disgusting, crooked tooth, bloody face, and I say, do you still like me? Right? We'd never said the L word. <laughs> and she looked at me, and before she could think, she said, Matt, I love you. Yeah. And I thought I would smash my face a million times. I'd lose my tooth over and over again. I don't care. This smile is what it is, and it's a testament of that love that she looked at me at certainly one of my ugliest points and said not what her brain could think, but what her heart felt. She said, I love you, and I never will change that. And when I think about the why of love, I think about stories like that. I think about my uh, mother, when my father, who uh, was a pastor in Ramona, California for several years, he had uh, three services, and so he was already gone. And my mom was dealing with us, and we were being horrible. Um, and I now have empathy for that. I know what that's like when it, you're trying to get your kids out of the house, and they are horrible. And so she's getting us in the car, and our driveway is on this hill like this, and our car was parked on this hill, and she was putting us in uh, the car seats, and when she buckled us in and she was going to go around, for whatever reason, the, the car began to roll down the hill, and it was going to roll into the street. And my mom was flustered and frustrated. But the moment she saw that car move, her face was ready. She just went into turbo mode. And, and the look on her face said, whatever will stop this car, I will do it. Is it my body in front of the tires? I'll throw it in front of the tires. I would. She just jumps through the window, her body just crashing against it, and she's reaching down, right? Where is it? And she pulls it, the emergency brake. And she looks at us with such relief with a face that said, I love you. And when we were being brats and we were being horrible. My mom looked past that, of course, and said, I would do anything for you because of how much I love you. And so when I think about the why of love, I think about stories like that. How easy it is to love when you are loved. And if I 
look back of those stories of where I was loved when frankly they were in moments I didn't really deserve it. I know that's the why of love. But there is a sort of problem here because when I said that it's complicated, when Jesus was saying, we give to those who ask and we turn the other cheek and we go the extra mile. And it's complicated in a way that says, well, look, it's not necessarily saying you always do these things. Some people are going to say, well, there's my out. I didn't want to do those things anyways. So if you're saying, well, I don't really need to do it, John Piper calls those type of people weaslers. They try to weasel out of this trap that Jesus said about we give and we give and we give. And they say, I don't have to do that? Good, I didn't really want to. See, but the spirit of it is stronger. He's saying we give in a way that says this doesn't matter to me. You give up your physical security. You give up your financial security. You are showing that the very bedrock of your soul rests not on these things, but on Jesus Christ. When you give up your coat, you're saying, I don't depend on this. When you give up your money, you're saying, I don't depend on this. You're willing to sacrifice your security in those things because you believe in the safety of Jesus Christ. You give in a way that demonstrates that Jesus is what matters. That's the spirit of what he's saying. And so, in many ways, the, the how we do it and the why are infused. And, and I want to look at Romans 5.10 where it says, for if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? You love your enemies because you have experienced what it's like to be loved as an enemy. It is easier to love when you have been loved. So at the root of how we love our enemies is our recognition that we have been loved as enemies. God did it first. And, it, and it, this idea is more radical than we think because what we're dealing with now for enemies is, man, that person believes in a way that I don't like. That person bugs me or annoys me, right? And I think about this story of um, Proculus and Paulus. It was discovered in the catacombs in Rome. And it, uh, it has been translated into English since, but it demonstrates the ideas that the early church had with respect to loving enemies, what they were dealing with. And it tells this story. So uh, Proculus was 
a very wealthy slave owner. Uh, And he had a slave named Paulus who he trusted so much that he made Paulus a steward over all of his estate. And when Proculus was going into town to purchase more slaves, he decided to take Paulus with him. And when uh, Proculus was observing all the slaves and checking out whether or not they would be good, Paulus saw this old, weak man. He just looked like he was ready to topple over, frankly. And he goes over to Proculus and he says, purchase this man. And Proculus says, why? He's old and weak. And Paul says, but I assure you, the things you want done will be done better than ever before. It'll be, it will get done twice as, as fast. And Proculus says, I don't, I don't understand. This man couldn't possibly do that. He's, he's old and he's weak. And Paul says, Paul says trust me, he's, he's cheap. I guess that's true. He's cheap. So he purchases this old man. And lo and behold, the work is getting done much better than before, twice as fast. But when Proculus really observes the situation, what he sees is the old man's not working. It's just that Paulus is doing twice the work, twice as hard. And then he's letting this old man rest, and he's giving this old man the best of his food. So Proculus goes to Paulus. He says, look, why do you have me buy this old man? Yeah, you know that I trust you. You know that I like you. What's the real story? Is it your father? Did he get sold into slavery? Paul says, no. No, this man, he means more to me than my father says, my goodness, is this a teacher who has taught you many great things? He says, no. No, this is not a teacher. This, this man has done more for me than my teacher. Proculus says, well, then who? Who is this man? And Paul says, this man is my enemy. Proculus is dumbfounded your enemy. He says, yes, this man killed my father and took me and my siblings as children and sold us into slavery. But I am a disciple of Christ, the one who said, love your enemies and overcome evil with good. This is how the church thought about this command. Love your enemies, even if the person has ruined your life. They've taken things that are meaningful to you beyond imagination. 
They've robbed you of a life of goodness and happiness. They sold you into slavery. They killed your father. But I am a disciple of Christ. And I overcome evil with good. So when you think about being nice to someone who has the wrong political beliefs, right? That is nothing compared to the extent to which this commandment goes. And the reality is, if we have experienced the deepness of Christ's love for us, we should want to share it. And, and, and I'm reminded of when, uh, the story of when Peter, um, after he denied Christ three times, and in the Gospel of John, it has um, Jesus coming up to Peter, and he says three times, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? He says, Jesus, you know that I love you. And he says, well, feed my lambs. Jesus says a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Jesus, you know that I love you. And he says, shepherd my sheep. And then the, when the third time comes around, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? It says that Peter is distraught because Jesus had asked this third time, do you love me? And it says, Jesus, you know everything. He's saying, look at my heart, right? You know everything. You know that I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. So in other words, Peter keeps taking it to the inside. You know what I am on the inside. And Jesus says, do this on the outside. You know what I am here. Yes, but do it out here. I feel this. Do this. If you love me. It's not what you're feeling, it's what you're doing. That's what matters. And so when Jesus does that for us, loves us in that way, we should want to love the same way. When I watch movies, I'm weird, I'll go to movies all by myself in the theater. Um, it's nice. Um, but when it's a good movie and you look around, you're like, I have no one to talk to about this, right? And so oftentimes I'll go and I'll, I'll re-watch movies with my wife, ones that I've seen, not because I'm like, I really want to watch this. I've done it with my parents too. They've known, I'm like, hey, watch this movie. And they're watching the movie and I'm watching them. Like, it's good, huh? It's good, huh? Right? Because I want them to have the satisfaction too. So when my wife walks out of the room, I pause it. I'm like, where are you going? She's like, oh, I was just going to go get a drink really quickly. Okay, well, you know you're missing the movie, right? And I'm watching it because I want to watch you watch it, right? Right? I want you 
to have what I had when I watched it. And we do it all the time. You know, we send, hey, I saw this funny video. I want you to see it too because I want you to see how funny it is and we can talk about how funny it is. We want to share things that we like. And if you don't want to share the sort of love that God has given to you, are you overwhelmed by the true reality of what He did? Because if you don't want to share that, I wonder whether or not you've really felt that. And so if we love because we are loved in this way, that's, that's, that's one of the major whys, right? We love our enemies because we know what it's like to be loved as enemies. That's one of the major whys. And I've got a second major why that I want to talk about. And uh, when I was a kid, I'm, I'm running out of time, I'm, but I'm, I want to finish this. When I was a kid, uh, and there was like career day, I would have these nice dress slacks, this nice button-up shirt, or a suit, um, at, at one point I did have one of those, and I would carry my dad's old brown brief, briefcase that he gave me. And if I were asked, what are you or what do you want to be? And I would say, I'm a pastor. I want to tell people about Jesus. Well, why? Well, because I want to be like my father. That's why. And I've had people come up to me, uh, some of them here now, and say, you know what, when you preach, you sound a lot like your father. And I say, good. Then I know I'm doing it right. Right? We want to be like the ones we love. And when Jesus says, in Matthew 5, 44 and 45, he says this, But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your Father in heaven. We love our enemies because we know what it's like to be loved in that way. And we love our enemies because we want to be like the one who has loved us in that way. Those are the two whys. We love because we know what it's like, and because we know what it's like, we want to love in that way. We want to be like the one who loves us in that way. We love because Jesus was like this. He was like this. He saw that we were not very good and that we were enemies. And he could have at any point said, I don't want to suffer. I want to ascend to glory now. I don't want to deal with these people. But instead, he went to the cross, and on the cross, instead of saying, yeah, I'm done with this, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In a moment of suffering and torture, he said, how can I love them more? He could have ended the suffering 
and said, I'm not going to die. But instead he said, I'm going to die because I love you. We were heading in the wrong direction. We were the car barreling down into the middle of the road and rather than be like, they have been brats today. I'll let them get hit by a car. He said, no, I will reach out. I'll do whatever it takes to stop it. Not because of anything you did. We didn't do anything to become friends with God. He moved on us and saved us long before we did anything to deserve it. So while we were enemies, Christ said, I will love you anyways. And I want you to love in the same way. And if you don't understand those whys, we knew all along, didn't we, that the whys would be Jesus? <laughs> That's the why. But if you don't understand that, if you don't feel that, then I think that you should become a Christian. I think that you should give your life to Christ, and I think that you should embrace a reality where you accept that love and you let it overwhelm you. You let it fill you. Because you will then not be stuck in a loop of, God, I love you, don't you see it? Don't you see it here? Because we'll see it in what you're doing. I pray that every single person in this room has that reality. And if not, I pray that you would seek that out. I pray that you would come to talk with Chad or myself and that you would accept that reality because it's a reality that has frankly changed my life. And I will give you my ironclad guarantee that if you accept it, it will change yours too. And that's the why. The why has always been Jesus. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much that you've given me the opportunity to share your heart on this matter of loving enemies, God. And you know better than anyone else that it's hard for me just as it's hard for everybody else to do the right thing, God. And I just pray that everyone here would be overwhelmed with your love in such a fantastic way, God, that they would want to share it that they would be overwhelmed with the reality that they have been loved as enemies and that they would want to love their enemies too. God, I pray that we would clamor, that we would slobber at the mouth to be like you, that our desires of our heart would be to be like you. God, you are not a do what I say, not what I do kind of God. You do what you say. God, you have loved us so much. And I pray that we would be willing 
to be instruments of your love, that we would embody this love in the world, God, and you would see it not just in our hearts, but in what we are doing. And we love you in your precious and holy name. Amen.